Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, well, we've been in a series uh, called Embracing Exile, uh, where we're talking about how do we respond in a time or a season of exile. Uh, we'll end this series next week. So a couple of weeks from today, we'll begin a, a brand new series just kind of walking through the book of Colossians, uh, which should be a lot of fun. Uh, some highlights from the series as we've gone about is that in, uh, we should, we're, we're really invited to embrace uh, a time of exile uh, as a time where God is uniquely at work uh, among his people. Uh, so we shouldn't uh, think poorly of exile or, or be totally fearful in our uh, sort of engagement of it, but rather hopeful as uh, God works in us through the season of exile. Uh, we should also work to solidify our identity as God's people in the midst of exile. Uh, and a great way to do that is rooting ourselves in the Christian story. And so we talked about how we as a community kind of walk through the rhythms uh, of the Christian calendar, which help us to, to live out, to embody, to learn about the, the, the life of Christ as we go along. Then we talked about developing a set of practices that will help us become God's unique people. Uh, and kind of the key thought that week was we can't think our way into holiness. We can't believe our way into holiness. Uh, but holiness takes practice and practices uh, to form us and shape us uniquely as God's people. Uh, and then last week we talked about uh, the invitation to bless Babylon uh, through our work. That is, our, our fundamental disposition toward Babylon. Should it be one uh, of sort of judgment or one of blessing? And we talked about how we really want to be a blessing to Babylon through uh, our work and our hobbies that go and create and bring beauty into the world. Uh, and I shared a lot of examples actually from our own community of people that are doing good work to bring uh, beauty into the world. Uh, today we, we just want to kind of build on this thought um, and kind of take it to its nat natural uh, next step, which is how do we then uh, begin to uh, pour into the following generation? How do we make sure that the people coming after us uh, are going to be uh, Christian? So uh, I invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 1, and at first I promise you'll think that this is a really bizarre text uh, for our topic today, uh, but I, I ask you to stick with me. I promise uh, we'll get there. Uh, but Daniel chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, uh, reading actually the entire chapter, uh, says this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Judah, or king of Judah, not son of Judah, king of Judah, uh, off to a rough start here. Uh, it only gets worse, I promise, with some of these Old Testament names. So, uh, but here we go. Uh, I'm going to start reverting to veggie tale names, like pretty soon, like uh, instead of Nebuchadnezzar, just Nebi, you know. So, uh, anyway, so Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Now these he carried off to the temple of his own God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Uh, then the king ordered uh, Ashpenaz. Now, if you're looking for baby names, uh, this is just a, a, a rich field of ideas, So, including Ashpenaz. So... Uh, so anyway, the chief of his uh, court officials uh, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. 
Uh, that is, young men who are without any physical defect, who are handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, who were well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And he was to teach these young men the language uh, and literature of the Babylonians. And so the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Now among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now the chief official gave, them, gave to them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of the Lord my king who has assigned your food and drink. Why uh, should he see you looking worse than the other men, young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. And so he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. Now at the end of the ten days, he looked health, they looked healthier and more nourished than any of the young men who had eaten the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So this is, uh, you're talking about kids. This, the, basically the bottom line is kids, eat your vegetables. <laughs> Thanks for coming to church today. Um, anyway, so, okay, so verse 17. Uh, to, to these four young men, God gave uh, knowledge and understanding and all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Now at the end of the time, set by the king, uh, to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all of the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus, who was called Billy Ray. This bad, isn't it? Okay, let me, let, let me sanctify this moment. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. <laughs> hey, the book of Daniel begins in a really odd way. Uh, it begins with a story about eating. Uh, Daniel and three of his friends are Judeans. They've been exiled into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, and the king intended to take the best Judeans and others and turn them into faithful Babylonians. I want you to catch that. The king's intention, King Nebuchadnezzar's intention, was to take the best Judeans and others and turn them into faithful Babylonians that will help him lead. Now, among the people he identifies as, as having tons of potential are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, for their training, he will do two things, at least to start. First, he will feed them out of the abundance of the king's table. And also, he will change their names to Belteshazzar, another great baby name idea, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
that is to say, this is, this is really, really important, because when you recognize what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do uh, in turning these folks into faithful Babylonians, he, recognize, he recognizes that giving them information about leadership or responsibility won't be enough. Uh, he has to churn them into Babylonians. He needs them to value what Babylonians value. He needs them to see the world like Babylonians see the world. Uh, but as the story progresses, you, you recognize that Daniel does something actually very interesting. When offered all the food from the abundance of the, Lord's ta- of the king's table, not the Lord's table, but the king's table, Daniel and his friends refuse to eat. This is very, very interesting. Instead, they eat vegetables for 10 days, and after those 10 days, appear healthier and more nourished than the young men who had eaten the royal food. And because of this, they are brought into leadership in Babylon. Uh, Now, you can take this uh, in kind of two directions. On one hand, you could say this is really a story about uh, the value of one diet over and above any other, (laughs) right? You could do that, uh, but I think this is a far richer passage of Scripture than just telling us how to eat. Uh, I'm convinced that this story is really about God's faithfulness to exiles. That this story, this odd story about food and the behavior of these four young men is really a story about God's faithfulness to his exile. Because what Daniel and his friends intuitively know is that if they allow their appetites and their desires to be defined by the bounty of the king's table, then they would eventually fully belong to Babylon. Uh, I told you recently that I, I told you uh, a couple weeks ago that Amy and I recently rewatched uh, The Hunger Games. Uh, and this is exactly the strategy of the capital uh, among uh, the um, tributes. They want to churn the tributes uh, into faithful uh, citizens of the capital. So as soon as they're uh, tributes, then they bring them into all the wealth and extravagance of the capital, hoping to churn their allegiance or their faithfulness to the capital instead of their own district. Uh, really compelling stuff. Uh, and so this is actually uh, precisely what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do. Uh, he, it's, it's simply not enough to uh, give them information. He has to churn them into Babylonians. And as a way of resisting that, Daniel and these, his three friends actually refuse to eat from the bounty of the table because they know that if they were to do that, then they would belong fully to Babylon. Uh, They knew that if they learned to love what was offered to them at the king's table, then they would then be enslaved to empire. Are you with me? Is this making sense? And so actually their refusal to eat the king's food was a small act to help them maintain their Judean identity. Uh, so, So their refusal to eat... Uh, from the king's table was actually just a small uh, kind of form of resistance to help them keep their Judean identity. Uh, this was precisely what was happening. Uh, and God was faithful to them uh, as they acted out allegiance to God and their own Jewish identity. And so so there's, there's just layers and layers of meaning happening in this story that are way beyond uh, kids, you should eat your vegetables, right? Uh, and actually, this story reminds me of um, a significant film Uh, that was released in 2002. Uh, It's one that you have probably seen and certainly one that you have never forgotten. And what I'm talking about is My Big Fat Greek Wedding. 
And you're wondering, like, how in the world or what in the world does this story have to do with big fat Greek wedding? Well, Tula uh, is 30, uh, single, and very Greek. You, may, how, you, you guys help me out. You guys remember big fat Greek wedding, right? Okay, okay, very good. See, I told you, you would never forget it. Like, if you've seen it, you never forget it. Some, some, that's right. So, yeah, and like, I still, I still, anytime I'm sore, I just look for the Windex, right? I mean, it's just like, it's exactly what I do. So, uh, so anyway, Tula is 30, she's single, she's very Greek, and her singleness concerns her dad, uh, whose name is Gus. Uh, he, he thinks that at 30, she's getting too old to marry and have kids, and more than anything, what he wants for his daughter is for her to find a nice Greek boy, right? Uh, so when Tula begins dating Ian Miller, clearly not Greek, uh, she knows her parents are going to be upset. And at first she hides her relationship from her family, but eventually they find out that she is in a romance. And when the time comes to meet Ian, things do not go well. Gus is angry and he is frustrated. Uh, here, I want to show you a couple of clips from the movie. Uh, just to make it worth, like, getting out in the cold and the snow, like, so that you can watch a little Big Fat Greek Wedding. Uh, the first clip is they're, they're meeting Ian for the very first time, uh, and it just kind of shows how things go, about a 90-second clip. Uh, and then the second clip is the scene after they get home from meeting Ian's entire family, uh, and they find out that, in fact, Ian's family is dry as toast. Uh, so let's uh, roll those two clips back-to-back -back here. Chicago, but you never come here to ask me, can you date my daughter? Well, I'm sorry, but I'll ask you if I can date your daughter. Sir, she's 30 years old. I am the head of this house. Okay, may I please date your daughter? No! I'll see you tomorrow. Didn't I say it's a mistake to educate women? But nobody listened to me. Now we have a boyfriend in the house. Is he nice Greek boy? Oh, oh no, no Greek. No Greek, exeno. Exeno with the big long hairs on top of his head. Costa. I'm sorry I lied to you. <sighs> okay, Tula. Maybe you are having a little romance. Hmm? But end it now. Eat something. Please. To them, you see it. And, and they look at us like we're from the zoo. Please. There's no work. There's no work, Maria. They, 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 they're different people. So dry. 
That family is like a piece of toast. No honey, no jam, just to dry. My daughter, my daughter gonna marry Ian Miller, a Xeno, a Xeno with a toast family. Shh. I never think this can happen to us. I try to put little marmalade. <laughs> that family needs a little marmalade, that's right. Exeno is Greek for stranger. Why is Gus so distraught and so frustrated? Uh, what we find out is it isn't that Ian is such a bad guy. Gus is so distraught because Ian isn't Greek. But why is that such a big deal? Well, if Tula marries a non-Greek, there's a good chance she might lose a sense of her Greek identity. And if she loses even just a portion of her Greek identity, then there will be no hope for future generations to keep it. It isn't so much about that particular relationship for Gus as much as it is about where is this going to go if Tula isn't Greek or loses a sense of who she is as a Greek woman, then the grandkids will have a little less. The great-grandkids, a little less than that. The great-great-grandkids may never know that they were, in fact, Greek. You see, what Daniel and his friends were trying to avoid for themselves in Daniel chapter 1, Gus is trying to avoid for his daughter. And I want to submit to you today that it is for us the number one fear in exile. What is going to happen with our kids? However you feel about how you handle exile, when we look at our kids, we wonder if they will hold the same values as us, if they will see the world like we do, or if they will be, in fact, in the end, fully integrated into Babylon. You see, it turns out that it's easy for all of us to be just like Gus. <laughs> so what must we do? How do we raise what might be called resident aliens? Or how do we bring up our kids so that they will maintain their uniqueness as the people of God? And, and really the broader question is, how do we go about making sure that generations to come have a Christian identity? I think it's helpful, again, to return to the story of Daniel in, in Daniel chapter 1 and then also in chapter 3, which I'll reference but won't read. You know, it's significant that um, Nebuchadnezzar tries to change the name of Daniel and his friends. Daniel's uh, name means, God is my judge. Uh, Belteshazzar means, Bel protects the king. Hananiah means, the Lord is gracious. Shadrach means the command of a coup. Mishael means who is like God. Meshach means the gods move with force. Azariah means the Lord has helped. And Abednego means the servant of Nebo. Now who are Bel, Aku, and Nebu? Or Nebo? 
They are all Babylonian gods. You see, it's clear that what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do is he's trying to move the primary identity of these four young men from a relationship with Yahweh to a relationship with the gods of Babylon. Because Nebuchadnezzar, in his brilliant kingship, actually knows that we act out of our core identity. We act out of who we believe ourselves to be, don't we? In fact, if you could just take some discernment in your own life and say, what are those thoughts about yourself that maybe you don't share with everybody, but they're there? And how oftentimes then do you move and act and, and, and go about your life responding and acting out of that identity? See, what's really popular is kind of putting on a face and this is who I am and I'm so big and confident and this and that. But man, in the secrets of our own home, the thoughts that we have about ourselves and so often the core identity of who we see ourselves to be is what we act out of. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, knowing that, says, if I want these four young men, these strapping young men who are talented and have all kinds of potential, if I really want them to help me lead in Babylon, I have to turn them into Babylonians. But if I'm going to turn them into Babylonians, I have to change their core identity of who they are, thus changing their names from a core relationship to Yahweh to a core relationship to the Babylonian gods. Now, the question is, does it work? The most famous story from the book of Daniel involving this group of friends are when Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are thrown into the fiery furnace for not bowing down to the image of King Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, we know this, this famous story best as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or VeggieTales, Rakshak, and Benny. <laughs> And while we often understand this story to be one of great deliverance, uh, I would submit to us that it is just as much a story about citizenship and identity. Uh, here's a story in a nutshell. A, a law is made that at certain times of the day, everyone uh, in Babylon should stop what they're doing and kneel before a giant statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, however, refuse to do this, and so they are thrown into the furnace to die. After being thrown in, though, they are seen uh, in the furnace, walking around, conversing. Uh, if I was feeling really spicy, I might, be say, I might say having a smoke. Uh, but I'm not feeling spicy, so I won't say that. <laughs> uh, but then what they also see is in the fiery furnace is a fourth figure, uh, whom many Old Testament scholars believe to be the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, seeing that they are fine and, and having no harm to them at all, they are taken out of the furnace unharmed to the amazement of everyone around, to which King Nebuchadnezzar issues a decree that it is okay to worship the Hebrew God. Did you notice this? Not that everyone would worship the Hebrew God, but that it's okay to do so. You see, the real concern for Nebuchadnezzar was not that these three worshipped Yahweh, uh, he had no issue with that. In fact, for Nebuchadnezzar, he would like to have as many gods uh, in Babylon as possible. For, in his mind, as many gods in Babylon, uh, the, the more powerful we can become. And so he has no issue, in fact, at all with these three men worshiping God. What Nebuchadnezzar wants is that despite their commitment to God, that their primary commitment be connected to Babylon. Uh, that is to say that 
Babylon takes no issue with religion unless it gets in the way of national allegiance. And it's still like that. Uh, author Scott Daniels refers to, to this as we confusion. Uh, we confusion is when you meld two identities into one and then you make them the same thing. Uh, if Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah uh, had referred to Babylonian gods as our gods, then they would have had we confusion. Uh, if the people of God mesh their allegiance to something or someone else in addition to God and then call it their own, then that's we confusion. Uh, if I say to Amy, it's time we plan our next social event, then that's we confusion. <laughs> uh, because I don't plan social events. Uh, she does. <laughs> and so if I say we need to do this, of course I really mean she needs to do this, right? Uh, if it were up to me, our family would likely be hermits. <laughs> uh, now there are so many things that can and need to be done in order to raise our children in the faith. Uh, but one key element, I think, is helping our kids to live without a we confusion, which is to say one of the key elements of raising resident aliens is to make sure our kids grow up with a clear identity of who they are and to whom they belong. Scott Daniels says this, and I've got the quote up on the screens. It'll be there. Scott Daniels says this in his book, Embracing Exile, on which this series is based. He says, a people trying to raise resident aliens have to work hard at helping their kids through we confusion. Who is the primary we that forms our identity? Is our primary we the universal church, Christ's body connected to one another throughout the world? Or is our primary we the nation? Is our primary we a particular social class? God forbid, is our primary we a particular race? In thinking about this message, there's lots and lots of nuance uh, about parenting and, and, and raising kids to know and love the Lord and I think grace does a great job of leading us in that and, and helping us think about intergenerational ministry in order to build an identity into our kids. But as a parent, I can say parenting is stinking hard. <laughs> like this is really, really hard work, right? Um, and there are so many things to, to think about and, and to talk about, but um, I, I wanted to simplify the message by simply saying this. For those of you who are parents of young children, I think they will pick up their we identity from three things primarily. The first one is how you spend time, how you spend money, and how you spend energy. Time and money and energy. I think that those three things are the biggest pieces of an identity forming puzzle. Those things help answer the question as a family of who are we? And I encourage you to take some time this week to discern what is being communicated to your children concerning this. Now, I also want to recognize this morning that many of you don't have young children. Uh, maybe you uh, are in a position where you're not interested in having kids. Maybe you are here today and you are unable to have children. 
Or maybe you are here and your children have grown and you think to yourself, my kids aren't that young anymore. I would say this message is also for you. And how do we raise up the generation around us and coming after us? When we dedicate or baptize children, we are making the declaration that this child belongs as a member of this community. Uh, I want to make sure you heard that this morning. Uh, When we dedicate or baptize children, we are making the declaration that this child belongs as a member of this community. Uh, The parents make a commitment to do do their best uh, in the home to raise their children with a clear identity. Uh, But then part of both baptism and dedication is that the, the community then also commits to help raise children with a clear identity to love and to support, to encourage, and to guide those children. Uh, Which is why on intergenerational Sundays, we accept that there will be extra noise and movement uh, because being in the service for the children, watching worship, participating in worship, being part of the process of showing children tangibly that they are part of the community. Uh, That's what I love about intergenerational Sundays uh, is that it's it's, we're all here together. And yeah, it's a little bit noisier, uh, but you know what? That's totally fine. Uh, in fact, I rather like the, the sound of kids and the noise of kids. I'd far prefer that during the message than snoring. <laughs> there's like, there's signs of life and then signs of not that much life, you know? Uh, and, and so I, I'd far rather that, this, these bolstering with life and joy and activity, I think that's a really great thing. And so I would encourage you, to, if, if you are... Uh, if you are a parent today, uh, one of your great responsibilities, joys, and privileges is being able to uh, be able to share and witness Christ to your children. And, and for if, you, if you're here today and your children are grown or you're not yet to a place where you have children or you just don't want kids of your own, uh, then my, this is my encouragement to you. Smile at children in the hallways of this church. Give them five. When they come bustling in after the service, and we went from like prayers of the people to this eruption of energy in a volcano, right, after service, then ask them about the craft that they made in eKids. Show interest in the toy that they've brought with them to church. Because these are all simple but profound actions that communicate you belong here and you are loved. One last bit of nuance today. I recognize that at any given moment, on any given day, we are all living out several identities. Already, today, and it's only just past 11, in this day, I have been a father, a son, a husband, a pastor, a friend, a drummer, and a disappointed Rockies fan. (laughs) So the question is not, do you have all of these different identities? You do. The question is, what is the primary identity that shapes and informs all the rest? I would hope that it's your identity in Christ. Your identity as a child of God 
Your identity is one who holds on to Christian hope. You know, the best way to encourage our children to grow up as resident aliens, as the people of God, is to show them, act out in front of them what it looks like and what it means to be God's unique people in the world. Be open and honest. If they ask a question to which you don't know the answer, say, I don't know. If they're struggling with something with which you still struggle or did struggle when, when, with when you were a child, say, you know what? I've been there. I know what it's like. The greatest favor we can do our kids is to act out our faith in front of them. Not make it a super secret thing that, that oh, we go to church, but we're not really sure why. But, but hey, I'm learning. I'm leaning into this. I'm not quite sure. Or, Pastor Andy said that and I don't agree. Or, Pastor Andy said that and that's awesome. <laughs> I hope it's that more often than not. Right? But, like, just watch them or, or have them watch you as you wrestle, as you struggle, as you do your best to live out this thing called faith. In fact, engage with them as you root yourself in the story of God. Engage with them so that they too can be rooted in the story of God. One of the things that I've seen as we as, as, we as a church have adopted uh, the rhythms of the Christian calendar is how quickly our kids picked up on it. And how quickly it began to form and shape them that they know that there are certain particular rhythms to the church year. And, and they probably can't articulate all of the theological reasons why. But what they do know is that there are particular rhythms to the year so that we have, if they are familiar with that rhythm, now we can build as they get older into the theology, right? But like Pentecost, the very first Pentecost Sunday that we celebrated here, we released these balloons. And it was a ton of fun. Uh, and it took one time before both of our kids were like, Pentecost Sunday, that's when we release the balloons in church, and that's amazing, right? Or Good Friday, the Good Friday service, when, the, when we read through the stations of the cross and the room goes from bright light to darker to darker to darker and then to total darkness before the light of resurrection and Easter. It took one year before our youngest in pre-K, began to recognize the rhythm of that and started calling it Black Friday. I think that's better, <laughs> you know? In fact, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a funny story. When we opened up the cupola and had all this natural light, the first thing Autumn said was, what are you going to do on Black Friday? <laughs> and I was like, I was like trying to make the connection. I was like, mm, I don't know, stay at home instead of going shopping? Uh, what does that have to do with the cupola? But she was recognizing and I finally figured out she was calling Good Friday Black Friday because she knew it went dark. As you root yourself in the story of God, involve your children in that. And I, I didn't tell Grace I was going to say this, and I hope I'm not giving too much away, but, but Grace is doing some phenomenal work. She's preparing a, a packet um, for you as parents of little activities, rituals, things you can do throughout the year uh, that match along with the liturgical calendar. Uh, and she's providing that out of her own expertise and research and then providing that for free to all of the parents here of just like, how, here's how you root your children 
in the story of God. Phenomenal. And uh, we're not sure when it's going to be ready, but she's working on it. And we hope to have it ready by Advent. I would also say, give them a core identity that will help shape them so that it will see so that their faith will be strong enough to see them through the ups and downs of life and the shifting trends of church and culture. And the last thing I'll say is this. As parents, uh, whether it's for our own children or the generation that will come after us, one of the greatest things we can do is recognize that the faith of the generation coming after us will not look or sound or be identical to our own and just be able to kind of rest in that and be able to say and be able to discern, is it rooted in Christ? If the answer is yes, then let the other stuff go. Recognize that their faith may not be expressed, it may not look like, it may not sound like, exactly like ours, but is it rooted in Christ? And if it is, let that other stuff go. And then know, like I have like, I have four last things. This, I promise this is the fourth. This is the fourth last thing. And know that they won't do everything right because you didn't either. In other words, remember, remember last week we talked about there's like fearful angst and then there's like quiet or restful hope. When it comes to raising our kids, let's take quiet hope instead of fearful angst. Let's give them space to kind of work out, figure out what that expression of faith looks like. And let's keep them as parents rooted in Christ above all else. Amen? I've had, I've had too many last things, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> let's come to the table today, I, I think, with, uh, with joyful hope. Uh, with joyful hope of what God is doing uh, in the midst of exile. Uh, with joyful hope that we can uh, faithfully live out these things so that our children uh, will know Christ and worship Him. And it may not look the same. Uh, it may look actually quite different, um, but rooted in Christ all the same. And so we praise God for that as we are our prisoners of hope.